Welcome to Listening to Paint Drive with Mike and Dan, a podcast about the art and hobby of miniature painting. I'm Mike. And I'm Dan. And we're here to discuss how to be better, braver, and happier painters. <laughs> I don't know what happened to my accent there, but I, I think I like it, and my wife will probably like it too. So, so hey, Dan, you kind of sounded sexy for the first time I know, time what happened? Yeah, I changed my clothes, and uh, I changed my voice, and everything's all cool. So, hey, welcome, everybody. Uh, we have a special guest. Dev is helping us out today with some uh, stuff. I don't know what kind of stuff, but we'll, we'll figure it out because we haven't scripted the show yet. <laughs> Welcome, it's going to be a blast. Hi, guys. It's uh, it's great to be back on. So in case everybody who's listening doesn't know, we have Dev Sotokar of CK Studios with us, also known as Raggy Paints. And uh, today we're going to be discussing um, a few of the projects that he's working on. And then we're going to get into this convoluted iceberg thing that Dan is making us do, um, which we're trying to figure out as we go along. But um, so, Dev, just in general, since the last time we we spoke, what have you been up to? Uh, that's a great question. I'm not entirely sure. Um, I've been uh, cracking out some commissions. I finally uh, finished up the Nova Fall um, uh, Sigmarine Army, not Sigmarine, Stormcaster Tunnel. That's the correct name. Um, that was a lot of orange, uh, but uh, they, they got painted up. And I think it's still live if you're very quick, depending on when this goes out. Yeah, I'll take a look here in a second. I remember when I just popped up. So yeah. Uh, but there's some also there's some other great auction pieces on there as well. I sent off some of uh, some models I painted last year, uh, some some pirates. So if you if you're interested in those, just buy some raffle tickets, help out some good causes. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, man, the world of commissions, man. Like, so a quick question about that. Like, how many commissions do you typically have uh, in the bucket, like, that you're working on? Uh, I try not to keep more than two beyond what I'm currently working on. And I'll generally only work on one at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it varies. It depends. You know, if, if somebody just wants one a one model commission done quickly, then I, I might slip it in. But I do try and keep that number down and just... You know, I know my painting speed uh, from experience, so I can be pretty upfront and I can be pretty on point with the the estimates that I give people, which I think helps a lot. Now, do you mostly paint uh, like army commissions or do you do uh, like display pieces? Yeah, I I actually mostly paint army commissions and I do that out of choice. I if I'm going to sink a lot of time into a model, I want it for myself. And I've spent a lot of time practicing painting really fast and and you know i can give other people great armies very quickly because of that so that's kind of where i position myself awesome yeah i'm gonna have a hard time turning over smog when it's done i mean yeah. it's you know it's one of those things it's like it's become a part of my life now <laughs> well, yeah you've been painting that thing for what three or four months or something seems like uh, a dedicated paint time only since back from ReaperCon, actually so about two yeah. months yeah i know um, you're taking some time every once in a while because hey that's a big freaking piece so yeah i don't know yeah. if i could paint all that red that's gotta be at least four bottles of red right there uh i actually went to more. went and picked up two replacement bottles today actually <laughs> that's kind of funny that you mentioned that you know i had this weird day where i have no idea really most of what happened during the day um, I got a, I did get to the gym, 
I got to Games Workshop and got my wife's wine, but the other hours in between there, I'm pretty sure I I might have been abducted by aliens. I had a time slip or something. I don't know. Who knows? But um, anyways, one of the things we didn't touch on before, Dev, was the hobby mentor program uh, that you had started. And I know, Dan, that's actually how Dan uh, first met you was through that program. So uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that hobby mentor program? Yeah, absolutely. So this was something I thought up uh, back when COVID was really kicking off and in-person classes were gone and, you know, it was kind of isolating for, for everybody. I started spending a lot more time on Instagram. The Instagram community, I think, has really flourished as a result of COVID, which has been a nice byproduct of it. Yes, definitely. And... Uh, you know, I, I, a lot of the painters on there are very good. A lot of the painters were pretty new because that that early window was a, a really good opportunity for folks to get in or folks to come back to the hobby. Um, and I wanted to try and help, you know, bridge that gap, give everybody an opportunity to express themselves and grow and become a, you know, better, braver, happier painter uh, as as easily and, and as community driven as possible. So I started Hobby Mentors and it was initially I was just saying, hey, if you want to take part in this, DM me. Tell me if you want to be a mentor or a student, you know, and, and where you are. And I'll try and match you up with somebody that's geographically relatively close, uh, kind of same time zone so that you can actually do a little bit of conversation. Um, and it, it kind of exploded. We had a couple hundred people. Uh, within a few months and I was like I can't do these pairings by myself anymore so I was like all right folks uh those of you that I've paired up carry on you know whatever is working for you guys I'm kicking off this discord channel if you're interested and I'm sure the guys will will put a link into the podcast show notes of course um just sign up to the discord channel have a look around the channels a lot of it is just kind of a help yourself thing people who have skills in certain areas will post them uh and you can look for those or you can just say hey look i'm looking for a mentor whatever it is just post it onto the discord channel and and someone will hopefully reach out to you or you know be bold reach out to someone and and find uh somebody to buddy up with to uh help help uh your progress or to help the progress of others that's fantastic. I mean, that's a, yeah, the, the responses are pretty impressive that that many people were like, Oh wait, you know, and I, I wonder where was it definitely heavier on the mentee side versus the mentor side, right? Did you get a lot more people wanting to be mentored than be mentors? It was actually an, a lot of people, the biggest group by far wanted both, which I love. Like uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's where I'm at overall slightly leans towards the teacher's side. There are a lot of people willing to teach, willing to help out. Um, and one of the, the philosophies I have is even if you're not a particularly good painter, you're still a fresh set of eyes with a different perspective, right? You've still got an appreciation of the things that you look at and you can bring that perspective. It may not be the only perspective and it may not be, you know, the, the student's preference, uh, but they can still learn from it and, and get that kind of uh, variety in, in, a, in feedback, which is kind of nice. And it's almost, uh, I don't know, sometimes you almost prefer the inexperienced feedback to the, you know what I mean, to, over, to overly analytical, especially if you're looking, you're doing a piece for, to get a reaction. 
you know, and then, and so I don't know. I, I love when newer painters point out stuff, you know what I mean? Like, like, ah, yeah. okay, well, I wanted this to be the first thing you saw. That was not the first thing you saw. <laughs> I need to make some changes. You know that, what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, I mean, that gut check, especially when you've got like, you know, generally a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, but for painters, <laughs> that little bit of knowledge without, you know, zooming into, you know, the microscopic detail, you instantly pick out what, what you see first, right? Like, you know, was it the face that you were hoping for, or maybe was it just that the sword was super bright or whatever? Like a novice painter will often fixate on that more quickly because they're not looking at how smooth your blends are, what your transitions are like, uh, what the color contrasts next to each other are, what the balances are, whether you've got, you know, your triads. Um, it, it, you know, sometimes that simplicity is is super valuable for sure. Absolutely. So Dan, talk a little bit about your, your original experience in the mentor program. Uh, so I was a mentor and I was a mentee. Um, I, I thought it was pretty good. Um, I, I wish, um, I wish I had more contact with, uh, with, with both of them nowadays. Uh, I think, um, you know, we, we went through our, you know, our conversations, you know, we did meet with, you know, and talk to each other online and send pictures back and forth and give advice. And that's exactly what this was meant to be. Um, but, you know, it was like right in that time when that summer, when things were just like, what is going on in the world kind of stuff. Right. So I, I think, uh, you know, our connections just kind of not I'm like afraid is a horrible term just separated a little bit only because we had just other things on our minds at that point. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, the questions I did have, those were um, definitely were answered and helped and I was able to move through. And I hope that I was able to help uh, the folks that were asking me for questions and advice uh, so that they can get through what, um, what they were having challenges with. And again, that's what it's supposed to be about, you know, just sharing information, sharing insights, and, you know, mm -hmm. some people really enjoy it. Some people, um, I, I guess there's some people that just don't like it and just try to figure it out on their own. But, <laughs> uh, but it's, it, it's, it's a much different world than watching the YouTube channels for hours on end, having someone just talk you through that one question that you just haven't been able to find the answer for saves days and hours um, from what, you, you know, it's like, yeah. oh, now I get it. Now I see what I was missing during this whole time. Um, and it does give us, uh, a, you know, as a mentor, gives us uh, a chance to share what we have and stretch us a little bit because, hey, I'm not the best blender out there. And if someone has a question about blending, you know, I got to be up on my game. So I might have to do a little bit more on my own or be able to explain it so that uh, the mentee understands what's going on. But I really I really enjoyed it. And it fits in, you know, Mike knows that my um, my behavioral science background. So I really dig this and really enjoy it. Um, so I think once we're done recording this, I think we might have a couple more conversations, Dev, about this <laughs> and then see if we can get uh, some more people involved. Because I think it's, a, you know, I, I, I think I think it's important to have. I think it's fun to have, especially when there's just times when we're not able to just get out and have those shows and those, you know, painting classes. You know, we're starting to, but for those that aren't comfortable or for areas that uh, we're not able to, to go full force on it this is still this still is a viable option that doesn't cost anything for people to get one-on-one -on -one advice on how to paint and how to answer those questions 
Absolutely, yeah. And and I think the the learning part for the for the mentors, as you mentioned, is is also super valuable. Um, teaching is an art and a skill of its own, and, and this is an opportunity to kind of practice that. It surely is. Surely. You, know, you know, and the one thing I'm, I'm going to throw in on this too is the, the warning to people that are would-be mentees, um, don't go looking for validation. Go looking for education and information. You don't, if you're a mentee and you already think that, and you, and you ask for advice and you get it back and you don't like the advice and you start arguing with the mentor, because I've heard of situations like that. I have a couple of friends that have done that, that we've interviewed on the podcast to talk about people reaching out to them and they start arguing about, the, uh, arguing with the person. <laughs> and really all they want to hear is have somebody who's got a name say, hey, that looks nice. Yeah. You know, and, and that's, that is a waste of everybody's time and you're in the wrong place. You're in the wrong hobby. If that's the validation that you're looking for, you know what I mean? Um, I mean, even in this hobby, there are places for that, right? Like generally Evia Metal, for instance, is, is a pretty friendly place. You know, mm -hmm. people will, will, will say nice things about a, a mini if you post it up, right? But mm -hmm. remember, you know, you don't have to ask for feedback. If you're asking for feedback, take it, yes. right? It may not be good feedback. It may not even be necessarily true feedback, but consider what they're saying and absorb it right it you, you don't need to to push back on it it doesn't benefit anybody right it, it, exactly say thank you appreciate the time and move on you know what i mean like or i'll think that, that that's something to consider you know <laughs> for sure but anyway so uh while we're here give me give us the name of the discord channel yeah the, so the discord channel is called hobby mentor um and it's uh, you know, it's one of those discordy things. So it's got the, the dedicated link to it. I will say, and this is super important. If you join that discord channel, go to the welcome, uh, you know, channel in, in, sorry, discord server. If you join that discord server, go to the welcome channel, select a role to be, I think it's, uh, journeyman or apprentice, I think are the two and they have no bearing on anything whatsoever, but it means that you won't get kicked from the server because otherwise with open Discord servers, you end up with a lot of bots, which I wanted to keep out. So it's just kind of that one little validate that you're a human person that's capable of reading and, and comprehending an instruction set and uh, you'll be in. So that's, that's the one little caveat that I do have to mention whenever I, I talk about the server. Dude, we play games where those bots can learn and gain, gain information. So that's a little scary. I don't know. Maybe by, you know, <laughs> the, the games that we play, man, it's Necrons, man, taking <laughs> over stuff. But uh, um, I'm, yeah, I mean, my day job works with machine learning, so I, I know that all too well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was going to say that might have been a sore spot. Sorry, my bad. <laughs> so, Dev, where do we put in line to like offerings to our AI masters that come that are coming? I just want to get ahead of the curve. Right? It, it turns out you can just, you know, speak it into the voice recognition on your phone. They'll get it. It's all Perfect. good. Perfect. <laughs> I love simple, simple, you know, begging for my life makes things easier. Yeah. Um, all right. So. Now, we've kind of ta talked about the hobby mentor stuff and what you're up to. Uh, why don't we get into why Dan uh, coerced you to be in here today? Uh, Dan, why don't you explain this iceberg thing a little bit, and then uh, we can take it from there. 
Well, I'm pretty sure I'm going to mess this all up, but that's okay because that's awesome because you're the one who brought us here and you're going to. That's screw right. Perfect. So I'm going to mess it all up because hey, you know what? I had real work today and I could not, uh, you know, do all the research and everything I wanted to. But that doesn't need to be in the show notes at all. Uh, so what happened be. was many, many, many months ago. Um, you know, uh, as you've folks that have heard uh, on the show, you know, Mike and I like crime, uh, true crime stuff. I like horror movies more than anything else, uh, found footage and crap like that. So lurking on the internet, this horror movie iceberg thing popped up and then it started to pop up in all kinds of different areas. And it just, you know, I was like, oh, that's pretty interesting. You know, you think horror movies are this level but then it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper until you're like you know i don't think i want to watch any more of this stuff because it's just pretty bad uh so i was like oh well that's interesting i wonder if this is something that we could do with miniature painting uh and the idea would be is you know you see an iceberg and you just see you know it's that that um picture everybody sees with the not the titanic but you know this is this is what you think your job is and then there's like 500 levels below it and that's what it actually is so the iceberg is what do we normally see as miniature painters and or what do we think we see as miniature painters when we get right into the hobby when we first start but as we start to dig and learn more techniques and stuff we realize that it's deeper and deeper and deeper and then at what point do you go, I just don't understand how to do this anymore. It's just too much. Because um, you don't want to start with, you know, learning how to put your first layers on and then realize that you need to make your own paints out of pigment and, you know, cooking oil or whatever you do. <laughs> so so, um, so uh, I, I put together a list of uh, painting techniques, hobby techniques, and so and. I divided it up between the three of us today just to have fun with this and see where do we feel these fit uh, within the, the whole continuum of painting techniques. And I think it would just be kind of fun because we really don't think about it very much. But maybe if we're having a problem with, uh, let's say, blending, you know, for, for different people, it's going to be different levels. But Maybe if it's something a little deeper than just regular painting, maybe that's something we need to pay attention to. Like, oh, I know that my, you know, the the level of confidence that I have in painting is at level two depth. But maybe what I've tried to do is three. So I need to stretch myself a little bit more, maybe practice so we can get a little bit better kind of thing. Um, Let me kind of describe this a little bit to the people who are listening. So basically the way the visual that Dan will post with the episode on Instagram and when we put it on Facebook and Twitter, et cetera, will be a picture of an iceberg. The top of the iceberg is above the water and that's level one, two, three, four, and five are other levels of the iceberg, but those are below waters. Basically uh, kind of like the concept of the iceberg, the tip of the iceberg is what everybody sees, but there's so much more, uh, to it than that and so so much what i just said mike i'm just trying to put it in a in a terms that are you mansplaining it to me (laughs) i I mean i think he's trying to redo this with a with a three-letter word cut out so you know oh no he can just cut that part out 
that whole thing he can just cut all, all that right. stuff out the driving the car so i'm not gonna I, I i'm gonna shut up then i don't and know i mean i'm gonna want, move if... on and just say okay dan since this was your freaking oh. idea why don't you start us out hey dan so yeah. for this avalanche thing for example what would you consider dry brushing so i'm thinking of the traditional <laughs> traditional dry brush where you're getting your paint and you're wiping it off it's the pr the process of dry brushing probably not the you know is it going to be a wet dry brush dry dry brush is it you know i don't think i went into that you know if you can do it really lightly just the process of like dry brush i'm going to dry brush you know just like two um you know two, two coats it, it's kind of that concept you know you don't have to do two coats you can do two thick coats or two thin coats or get turn it into a glaze and it'd be 50 coats but <laughs> It's, okay. it's definitely a good level one, right? Like you can just quickly so learn everybody, it, apply yeah, it. If, so if we were to go into a store and say, man, I really <laughs> need to know about painting, or if you type into YouTube or whatever, how to paint, level ones would most likely be the things that we would see a majority of. How do you do, you know, how do you put your base coat on? How do you do Zenithal painting, which we'll get into, you know, what is a wash? What is this? So there's a whole bunch of stuff that's, that's out there that we'll see, but the, the real basic stuff that we would always start off with and say, boy, I want to try this new thing, but I'm so much more comfortable with this level one because it's just much easier. I can, you know, I guess I can blend. I can do all that if I want to, but you know what? Today I was painting those Tyranids and after I have about 150 of them to do, I just feel like dry brushing them right now. <laughs> that's a level one for this. So the first one I have is dry brushing and I put that at a level one. And uh, I can continue to go, or if uh, you guys want to take a stab at one or two of them, however you guys want, maybe all your ones, whatever. Dev, why don't you go next? Uh, okay, so I didn't grade ahead of time. I'm doing this on the fly, but the first thing on here is contrast. And in my mind, I think that this is really talking about the artistic concept of contrast rather than the line of paints. Yes. Um, and, and this is an interesting one because I think it's, probably at a two it's something that you're going to pick up pretty quickly you're gonna even if you're not giving it a name and you may not find the name for a while you're going to be seeing it right certain models catch your eye way way better way more quickly than others and if you are wanting to go into competition painting this is essential if you're wanting to just paint things that catch people's eye it's a very important thing to look at and it has a lot of uh, you know, depth to it. You can you can go down whole art degrees that look into color theory, and a lot of that is conversant in in contrast is is convertible into to talking of contrast, right? You've got light dark contrast, you've got warm cool contrast, you've got um, opposite color contrast. All all of these are variations on the same thing, but you're going to be noticing it so early on. I'd put it at a two, but you want to go there you can take this all the way to the five mm -hmm. right it's one of those ones that there the the depth of contrast as you put more work in and more knowledge increases mm -hmm. you know and that's i love that you pointed out that it's not just dark versus light that it's you know texture or texture versus smooth versus you know Ooh, texture is a great one yeah you know yeah you know, putting for trying to keep this simple guys now you guys are like going off into like I can't explain it in my shit. 
<laughs> oh, but that's the joy of it is you don't even have to be able to, right? You're just going to notice it. Mm-hmm. True, it, it, true. it doesn't require words. You, you'll see it, right? If you if you stand an ultramarine next to an imperial fist, for those of you that are into the G dubs, you're gonna see that imperial fist if it's a really good, well painted imperial fist pop just so much more because that yellow is so vibrant. Right, right. It's gonna grab your eyes, and so uh, I guess I'll go next, and I um, I'm gonna jump down my list a little bit more. Uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit about edge highlighting because I think edge highlighting is another one of those ones that kind of spans across the, the iceberg. And so when you kind of learn, if you're a, a GW person or I, I mean, we can't just say GW because a lot of companies teach people to paint similarly that you have the base coat, your wash, and then your highlight. Most of the time that highlight they're talking about is an edge highlighting. And that is designed in order to, you take, uh, a thin amount of paint, a little bit on your brush, running along the edges of sharp areas in order to build contrast and kind of define shapes. Um, as you get more advanced, and uh, to me, that would probably be like a level two. Um, but when you start talking about other visual techniques, such as uh, non-metallic metal, um, and I even think it's also true with uh, object source lighting, other techniques, edge highlighting cakes on another level of importance. Um, edge highlighting is critical to the way that light reflects off of metallic surfaces, um, because that's where most of the light catches is on the edge and the ability to properly edge highlight those things is a much different level than per se of edge highlighting a space Marine shoulder pad. Um, I might be overthinking that a little bit, but I, I, I'm not necessarily, I don't think so per se, because I think I also have black lining, which we'll talk about when I next time I get to put I'd, it I'd throw them in together, honestly. I, I yeah. think they're very, very similar styles and uh, and Agreed. they require similar brush control. Mm-hmm. They have similar effects on the opposite parts of the model. Right. Um, <laughs> sure. I just realized that you got, you got the two extremes. <laughs> right. And so um, I feel like that you can get edge highlighting all the way down in four and five level of te- when you start talking about techniques such as non-metallic metal and object source lighting. Um, so I guess with, with, with Deb's endorsement, then I'll keep, I'll move on. And then I'll have the next technique I have is uh, black lining. Um, to me, this, I w- this is the one thing I wish I knew about when I first started painting miniatures. Um, the difference that black lining makes or even not even black lining dark lining makes to separate things out in panels necks around collars all those simple things even buttons and stuff along those lines i was stuck in the world of put a wash on it uh and that's where you get definition but man you take thin black paint or ink i I typically like to use ink when i black line um because it comes off the brush a little bit easier um it just the the quality of your paint job like doubles almost instantaneously they talk about washes as liquid talent black lining is is the extreme version of that and i think normal just separating panels out gives definition makes things jump uh jump out at you or or pop on the table but then you get into the four and five level of black lining and that is that dark next to light when you have the bright edge highlight versus the black line on non-metallic metal, you're getting more pop, more contrast, and now you're starting to really uh, develop a, the look that you want on a model. 
And so I, I, I would definitely say you could put basic black lining would be kind of one and a half and you should learn it. If you're new in painting, uh, people that I know that have gotten into painting recently, like I have a cousin who's recently started painting and a couple of his friends and like black line, get in the habit of doing it now. Yeah. Start now. <laughs> it's a um, tough one I, because the and and it, it, the, I'm going to weigh in mostly because generally speaking, when people give when I give people feedback and I only give it when when people have asked, uh, the only time that I ever get pushback from the feedback I'm giving them is if I mention dark lining or black lining, because I think for a lot of people it means one of two things. It either means that it's going to look like it's a cartoon, like thick bold black lines separating everything which it can and it probably will when you first start but that's really not the intent of it the other thing is that it just looks wavy and and uh, uneven and it, it makes the model look even worse and both of those can be true and the only way to get past it is by practicing um but it doesn't have to be black as you said right like for cool colors i generally use Payne's gray ink for yeah. warm colors i'll use like a burnt umber uh, you know, really rich dark brown color. Um, it doesn't have to be black. It's just called black lining because it's in the recesses, it's dark colors. Um, but if you can do it and if you can do it right, and if you can do it in nice thin lines, controlled areas, oh man, it, it, that is something that gives color separation. It helps define the shape of the model. It will do so much to make that model pop on the table. It's, it, definitely worth doing right and, and the one thing i'll add i appreciate that that dev um the one thing i'll add to it is understanding when not to black line right that's that's part of it too so you may have your belt that's separating your robe or the belt that goes around your cloak yes black line the black line the belt don't black line the 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 folds of the cloak right because that's not how necessarily shadows and things along those work because then then you that's how you get really cartoony is when you start emphasize uh, black lining things that don't need to be emphasized and that's maybe where you're also talking more in the four or five range that you know black, where black lining is is understanding where it's appropriate and where it's not or dark lining i guess really you should call it dark lining but you know hey <laughs> It is what it is, but yeah, no, thank you very much. Yep. Uh, Dan, like I said, that puts you next. Yeah. So my next one is non-metallic metal. So we, Ooh. I know we just talked about it and it's how, how important it is. Um, I guess it's a, a, I guess a personal preference if you want to use true metallics or non-metallics. Uh, I have this at a level three. And the reason why is because personally I can't do it. <laughs> so I try, um, but it doesn't work. So what are we talking about when we say non-metallic metals? Uh, it's when you're painting regular or using regular paints to create highlights and shadows and make your metal look like real metal. Um, I suck at it. I have a hard time doing it. Um, so that's why it's a, a level three for me. I, I just, the placement of shadows and reflective surface, you know, and, and, how reflective it is, it just doesn't come naturally. So for me, when I do it, uh, it's usually just a regular blend from light to dark um, without any, um, not without me really worrying about where the, the highlights are really supposed to be going and where it's not. Um, it gets me through what I need to because uh, I don't do uh, big enough parts for it. And if I find that I'm just 
in a pickle, then I'll just pull out my metallics and use those. <laughs> it's I, I like this one because it's it's not a essential technique, um, but it's one I adopted. I mean, we mentioned this on the last podcast, right? Um, it, it's a really good exercise in learning light placement and bounce light and reflections. So it definitely has its values, um, but it, it can be a challenge for sure. Yes, it can. Well, I just want to throw in that I think that what get, gets lost in a lot of times the conversation of the of the wars on Facebook and such about non-metallic versus true metallic is learning to paint non-metallic metal is a gateway technique. It's not necessarily end-all be-all. I feel like my practicing a non-metallic metal has made my painting black better. Like painting difficult colors is becoming easier by learning kind of the techniques that are required to, to, to execute non-metallic metal. So getting better blends and putting lights in the right place and understanding the percentages, right? Like my big killer on, on, uh, for me on steel is I am terrible at the midtone. Like I can get the shadow, I can get the highlight, but getting the midtone to make it, which is part of one of the key to give it that steel feel, because you have that kind of bluish steel to it. Um, I get black and white. Awesome. Um, <laughs> it's that in between, but learning those, like, for example, black has to read, I think, what is it? 75% of something has to be black for it to be red, black in your eyes. And so that's part of that whole, I feel like I'm learning that better by practicing non-metallic metal. So even if uh, I were a hardcore true metallic metal forever person, um, I would still want to learn how to do non-metallic metals, but true metallic metals on my list. And we'll talk about it later and the, the bullshit of it. But anyways, Deb, <laughs> well, hey, you turn. know what uh, I was saying, Mike, why don't you just go ahead and talk about, it? we just did non-metallics. And, <laughs> We're going to get through all of Mike's stuff and then he's going to be left yeah, with his thoughts for the rest of the show. Say, hey, Mike, why don't you go to the bathroom? We're going to talk about the rest <laughs> yeah, of yeah. I, Actually, I love it. I think let's keep on the train. Let's go with true metallics. Yep. I was like, welcome to the mic show. Um, uh, so, okay. I don't know where to place true metallic metals because I think it's, I, I think it's a bullshit technique. And the reason why I think it's a bullshit technique is because it is not true metallic metals. It is not just painting with metal paints. It is painting with a metal paint and one metal paint as a base, and then maybe a metal paint as a highlight, but the rest of it's controlled by non-metallic paints, like putting in shadows with inks, etc. And so, when I think people get things confused that when they paint a blade on a sword, put a wash on it, edge highlight it with like, we'll even go GW paints. You start with ledge, lead belcher, put none oil on it, edge highlight it with iron breaker and do a final edge highlight with stormcast eternal, whatever stormcast silver, right? That's not true metallic metal, right? But that's what I think a lot of people think is true metallic metal, at least that kind of, um, more new into the world of painting true metallic metal is basically the same thing as non-metallic metal you control where you put the lights you control where you put the shadows etc i mean but and but you don't use metallic paints per se to do all of that especially in the world of shadows i will say though that there are people that do this absolutely amazingly and uh to me true metallic metal would probably be three four area probably four i i because i believe working with metallic paints is actually harder than working with regular paints because it's more difficult to control light reflections when you're looking at something that's reflecting light back at you 
Uh, so yeah. anyways, that's, I'm, that's I'm, my two cents. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I got to agree with you here. I think that true metallic metal is exactly the same as non-metallic metal, but playing on hard mode, because honestly, I straight up cannot see where I'm placing highlights a lot of the time, where I'm placing shadows, because everything is so influenced by your light source as you're painting. Yeah. It's, it's one of the reasons that I generally don't touch this very much. I, I stick to my non-metallics for my looks. Wow. So for me, I put this as a one because I would just slather down that belcher and put on Manolan oil. Be done with it. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to dry brush with Necron compound? Come on. No, because when I do that, I mess it up. Because, <laughs> because my level one dry brush sucks too. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Dan is uh, the listeners out there. Dan is unnecessarily hard on himself. He did just get a trophy. I mean, come on, man! You got a painting trophy at that. I had to buy that trophy. You still got it, though. <laughs> you know, my checks went out for the other day for Reapercon, so I feel your pain. <laughs> that hurt the wallet. Um, all right, Deb. So you go. I'm tired. I'm done talking, man. I feel like I've, I've been running my mouth for ages. All right, so, so the next one I have on, on my list is using a wet palette. Now, I think this is going to be the controversial moment here. Using a wet palette is even less than a one. I, not everybody likes a wet palette, but I know so many people that have basically said, oh, yeah, I never use a wet palette. I don't see the point. Paint one model, just one model, like, a, you know, a sergeant in, in a unit or something like that entirely using a wet palette do it over one session or a couple of sessions in a few days using nothing but a wet palette because you will learn just how valuable it can be for mixing colors for keeping paints consistent for controlling that consistency um it's it's essential i i was that person because i i i when i first started i did the the um ceramic tile with putting my paints on it and you know within 30 seconds they're dried um but that's how i was taught to paint yep there you go i still have mine though and, yep has its uses it does yes, it definitely does I, right when i was getting ready to throw it away i learned that like oh i actually need this now let me go dig that thing out um but when i i went to a painting class and they said you're going to use a wet palette and i was like holy crap this is pretty freaking cool. I think I need to buy one now. Um, and it, and now I, I feel kind of weird not using one um, unless it's for one of those little cases where I need to have um, not a wet palette, but something very dry. So I totally get where you're coming from. Right. And yeah, I, I think what we discussed a little bit before the show too, that we should throw out there is that you talked about how there wasn't really, it's not really a learning curve for a wet palette it's either a do or a don't and I, yeah i think that's a good point there's there's a little bit there right i i believe that the substrate you use matters a lot um mm -hmm. i believe that the, the medium you use a lot it matters a lot and the amount of water you include matters a lot and you will learn those things that is a bit of a curve um but it's it's not it's nothing like as complicated as some of the things that we've got on this list Right. And, and, you know, and you can make it as simple as you want by buying a pre or like a pre-made one, like from, you know, Dan did a review of the Game Envy one recently. Um, I mostly use my my home one because I like, I think paper towels hold the water better than sponges for me. Um, and so, 
you know, that that's a personal preference. Plus mine is also my palette is, was it 26 by 15? Yeah. It's freaking huge. Right. And so I, I use a, I, I use a huge palette when I paint. Um, Cause otherwise those small palettes, man, I'd only be able to put like two paints by the time I'm done mixing and throwing snow away. <laughs> like I'd be throwing it all away, man. Did I show you my travel palette when I was uh, at Reapercon? Yeah, you did, yeah. And I was like, yeah. holy crap, how do you use that? So the secret is, that didn't used to be my travel palette. That used to be my only palette for years. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, for those of you playing along at home, it's about the size of a credit card. Yeah, it, he's not kidding. Not kidding. Actually, I think that my my mother in law one year gave people gift cards wrapped in the you know put in the and wrapped them so they had something to open. Yeah, it's really. I'm trying to think. I don't even know where mine mine is right now. Oh, it's upstairs because I was painting upstairs. But uh, yeah, no, like yeah, it, like, the bigger the better. Actually, I also have uh one of those uh, kids uh, finger painting trays from Crayola. That's even actually bigger. So like when I'm really like into a project, I'll actually use that too. Uh, granted, you know, it takes half a roll of parchment paper and paper towels to make it, but still, you know, <laughs> cost benefit analysis. <laughs> so, Dev, why don't you give us another one? Sure. Uh, so next up, we've got projected shadows. And this is a super fun subject, but I'm going to put it squarely at a four. Um, it's it's very, very situational. Um most of the time when we're talking zeniths, when we're talking soft atmospheric lighting, it really doesn't play a, a particularly important role. Um, there is a little bit of a learning curve to it. Uh, you need to balance those things. It plays a lot into kind of object source lighting, which I know I'm not going to steal Mike's, <laughs> Mike's thunder on that one. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, sometimes it can just be super fun. Uh, if I, I've painted models in a kind of noir style in the past, and you've got those nice, long, defined shadows. Um, one of the, the first competition models I painted was the librarian from the Discworld series. And he sat surrounded by books in candlelight, and those candles are obviously casting a strong shadow. So it definitely has some some useful plays on it. Um, and it comes in a way back to contrast, right? You're just thinking about your light and dark values and where to place them. Like a, really a lot of our, our hobby is. No, it's all, that's cast shadow. And you know, it's one of those things. It, it's tricky because as you turn a model, a painted cast shadow no longer makes sense, right? Like, so if you're looking at it from, it's the, I guess the, what people say, oh, that's why NMM sucks is because the shadow's down there with you. But they, in, a, in a cast shadow situation, it could be tricky to get get it done properly. I've, I think I've only seen it done totally properly a, a couple of times. I, I want, I, now you've got my, I love the noir style. So if you have pictures of the noir style stuff you've painted, text them to me man i want to see them i love that stuff uh, i'll see if i can dig them out i think they're in storage at this point but okay. uh, i've definitely got photos of the library and i'll send that over and that's one of the really good use cases because there you've got the the source of the light on the same model so even as you turn it your mm -hmm. your shadows don't shift yeah no that's that's a good idea actually yeah having multiple uh, having multiple sources of light in it a lot yeah that's a good little cheat for sure man or not cheap but uh <laughs> anyways so dan you want to throw one out now 
Sure, I'm gonna go back to I'm gonna I'm gonna stay up there at level one for a bit, and um, I have washes down. So I think it's um, that just happens to be just one of those basic first type of techniques that you learn when you're like just starting. Like, hey, I I know something about this is supposed to be a shadow, or I want to make this color change a little bit. Let me slap this ink stuff on it or wash. And look, it changed the color a little bit. Uh, so I think that just goes to like a, a level one. I didn't, I'm not going into more deeper stuff like using some washes to put very specific shadows in places, which I think uh, it starts to dev a little bit into like level two or level three a little bit. Um, but yeah, using using the washes, it's just a, a simple technique that, that we use and we kind of start out at it and we can get more and more mature with it and we can definitely make it much more comp not complicated, but to, to do other things that, uh, that we normally would want to do with paints. Okay. So yeah, I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, yep. I can do a, another one. Uh, Go right ahead. I'm all right. <laughs> I talked that you guys told me I talked too much. I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm along for the ride for a moment. <laughs> I was just saying we were picking all of yours super early on. You were going to run out. <laughs> hey, that's fine. He can. Yeah. So, um, that, so I'm going to go to one of more, more complicated. So it's, it's kind of difficult. Another one it's difficult because everything is difficult for me, but I love the theory of this. So a color gambit map, or a selective palette. And we might have mixed some things in here. And I love the whole theory of taking a um, color wheel and just cutting a triangle and placing it over your colors and saying, these are the only colors I'm going to use. And I think it just opens up because the way the colors all interact in that defined space everything just kind of like works together. All those colors all fit together. And I just, I love the way that that works. I suck at it because uh, the real theory of it or the real usage of it would be all your paints that you have within your, your um, selective palette are already pre-mixed. So you're never going to go outside of the extremes. You're never going to go outside of that color blue or that yellow that you have. You're never going to go outside of that because you don't have anything darker and you shouldn't be cross mixing because everything gets kind of like jumbled up and muddy. So once you have this palette already created, those are the only colors that you get to use. And I think it, it, it I, the idea of that, so to be able to just focus on this limited number of colors and to make it work, uh, the theory of just, I, I think it's fantastic. I can't do it because I always have a black and a white on my palette and I will next like, Oh, you know, I like that blue, but if I just moved it just a little bit, but once you do it one time, then it just messes up. I'm like, okay, might as well just throw some blues and some yellows and some greens mm -hmm. in here. And uh, let me just go to town. And then it loses everything. It loses its personality. It loses all that continuity that I've already built into it. So that's why I would want to put it at a three, but I think the general usage if you're strict with it would be a level two because it's not very difficult. It's like, Hey, I'm using these 15 colors and they're really, really tight. And that's all I'm going to do. I don't have to worry about mixing other colors into it or worry about any of that stuff. So I, I think actually in our hobby, it's made harder. Um, and the reason for that is because 
most of us use hobby paints and we don't know what pigments make up those hobby paints, right? Yep. You know, most people know that blacks are often blue based, but as, I, I love doing this with Vallejo paints. If you put a Vallejo paint on a wet palette and leave it overnight and, and you'll see that there's like all kinds of gray and, and weird colors. I, I had a skin paint from Coat d'Arms that I left on a wet palette overnight. It was a gray green in the morning on the surface. I'm like, where the hell did those pigments come from? In traditional painting, and, and actually my next item is, is Zorn palette, which I guess is an example of gamut mapping. Um, because uh, for those of you that don't know, Zorn palette is use of titanium white, um, vermilion red, I think, a black and uh, yellow ochre. I had to just crib sheet that last one. Um, and those three colors, with the exception of the black, the white is neutral, but black tends to be cold. The white and the vermilion are really the only quote unquote colors introduced, and they're both very warm. So you're relying on that black to provide you a lot of your contrast. Um, for those of you that haven't encountered Zorn palette before, in your head, just picture Blanchitsu because it's it's a similar color palette, if not necessarily a similar art style. Um, all of these exercises give you much better understanding of the paints you work with, how they interact, how light and color interact. But it really helps if you're dealing with a true single color on each, at each stage, because if if there are mixes in there, you can mix, you know, a uh, a green and a blue and you can end up with a gray just by virtue of the the green having a lot of yellow or maybe even some warmer red tones in it and that instantly just desaturates everything and you just flatten to the middle and get this this browny gray goopy mess and can I, i'm going to throw this in there too is that one of the things that i think these are the type of things that befuddle uh, painters, like, especially like me, where I struggle, where, um, with wet, like wet blending is one we're going to talk about at some point, but the, I finally figured out why, when I was wet blending, why I was winding up getting colors that I wasn't going, I wasn't getting that gradient. I thought, because one was too heavy in a yellow, one was too heavy in a blue. And I'm like, why am I getting green? These are two clearly two blues that are, that look like they're from a triad um and it's because of the colors or just getting stuff that looks like mud like you said like all of a sudden you got a gray and you're like how did i get gray from it and so I, it's such an important lesson to to learn those things but I, i'm going to throw in because i have mixing colors next which kind of makes sense to follow on with that um and so you kind of have choices to make you can use model paints that and uh, both GW and Reaper have triads, so it's kind of easier paint by numbers type quality, um, especially when you're beginning painting and you're learning colors and don't don't have an artistic background. Uh, those are wonderful. Um, but as you get more like this is another one of those ones at different levels. Right. So when I first started mixing colors, I started by just adding white and black to a base coat to kind of darken and lighten shadows but then you go into like kind of banshee mode later on where you're mixing your own flesh tones with just the primary colors and the, it's a different like they're kind of different levels so i would probably put you know adding whites and like that type of like darkening and and lightening as a toning and tinting i guess technically in the art world um or no toning and uh, toning and shading i believe um that's kind of a level one. 
But I feel like when you're starting to mix your own colors, like flesh tones and such, you're looking in a solid four because now you're interact like now you're kind of taking that's a big jump from relying on pre-mixed model paints. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Mm -hmm. But yeah. um so I feel like that kind of like works well with the the two with the the gamut map and then the the Zorn palette, and then in, leading into actually mixing your own your own colors and stuff. And so my for uh, recently my first model mixing my own colors was was back in October when we took Eric's class when I was like, okay, I'm going to mix my own flesh tones. I'm not going to go, I'm not going to grab a bottle of flesh tone. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, I didn't use necessarily straight primaries, but like I used red browns and yellow ochres. I didn't use like Cadian flesh tone or dark elf flesh or anything like that to add. And I, I think ice yellow from Vallejo is my main highlight color that I used adding it in and such. And so, yeah, it's a, an amazing, uh, process it really is uh liberating to be able to kind of mix your own stuff but i get i, I still 95 percent of the time reach for that that pre-mixed bottle uh you know I'm, I'm painting a goddamn iguana sized dragon so everything is pre-mixed you know <laughs> there's no there's no uh there's no uh wet palette magic going on in that it's just pfft, shit going on a palette and painting um but yeah Anyway. And also, I agree. Like, I mean, I think the mixing own paints colors ended up on all of ours. So, um, oh, did it? Yeah, it did. Oh, uh, did it? Oh, no way. <laughs> uh, it's called making own paints on my side, which I'm oh, hoping is not yes. from pigments and, and medium, Yours although I can talk about Yes, yes. Okay, I, oh, we can drift into that. But what I was going to say about mixing own paints is that that toning and tinting is is definitely a, a or toning and, and whatever it was you said <laughs> well it's all three of them toning shading <laughs> yeah. and shading one shading. is adding gray Sorry. one's adding white one's making a gray and the other one is adding darkening that is definitely i think you know a low level and another reason that the that you know you're starting with primaries or whatever is is a much more advanced thing is because a lot of mini painters a lot of hobbyists straight up don't need to do it right mm -hmm. If you're painting armies, if you're, you know, a war gamer and you're painting armies, or if you're just in this to have pretty models, just straight up use the model paints, right? You can, you can shade them a little bit, but if you've painted an army and you go back a year later and you want to add to it, you're going to have consistency. And I promise you, you won't if you try mixing your own paints from scratch on that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's a challenge too. You know, I, I always feel like if I'm going to mix my own paints, I better finish that damn part part of the model and be done with it before those paints are gone and I have to remix. Yeah. And then I never mix enough of the yeah. paints. And so I'm kind of, I don't know. Sometimes when I do that, it looks like a third grader painted my model, but you know. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, moving on to making own paints. I, this is straight up a five. Uh, <laughs> no doubts. I have not, aside from... Aside from putting pigments into medium occasionally, which I guess is basically what you're doing here. Um, and I'm looking to do that for a, a more uh, pigmented effect, like using dry pigments, but helping them fix. Uh, you don't need to do this, people. It's, it's an <laughs> interesting exercise. It will teach you a whole ton about the chemistry of paints and how they work, what the binder is, what the medium is, and what the pigment is that's that's a level beyond what 
I want to be doing most of the time. Exactly. And that, and I, I, I put that in there when, you know, when I was, uh, you know, looking at like mixing colored paints, hey, that's, you know, that's, that's pretty easy. I think, um, I think the difference between mine and Mike's, and I'll get back to this making your own paints is I was thinking of the five colors. So you mm-hmm. use the primary black and white, and then you can make every color out of that. But that would be that's and that's where I was trying to separate because that's definitely a four, three, four, and then just mixing paints together to come up with a third color or something is definitely a lot lighter. So when so my wife uh, she does uh, real art, and um, we used to go to this art store in Northern Virginia, and I'm always fascinated and just wish I could find this place again that had a wall of nothing but striped pigments. And my wife would tell me about like, oh, well, this is how you're supposed to mix them. And this is how you would make your own colors. And she's like, make sure you wear a mask because you're going to die because that's like, <laughs> that's got radiation in it. And right. Cancer in it and all that stuff. So it's always in my mind. When I, whenever I see new paint, my, I just automatically flash back to like, how would I pick these different colors? and mix them up in a bag and then mix some goop in it and then turn it into my own paint. So yeah, those are hardcore folks that are making their own paint, but you know what? We almost do that because we're looking for that perfect blue or that perfect green. And like, well, we got to mix a little bit more in here. It's like, let me just drop this down a bit. Let me add a little bit more white or yellow or something to get that color I'm looking for. So we kind of dabble in it a little bit at that level three. But we're not out there like mixing that shit up ourselves in oil paints and yeah. whatever linseed oil and whatever else we're doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you want to go down that route, I'd say start with either inks or artist paints, where they're just from a single pigment source, right? Your titanium right. white, your yellow ochre, your vermilion. Um, you know, try those out. Uh, you know, your cyanoacrylates or or whatever they are. Um, because those or those are the ones that are going to give you a real sense of how those the dry pigments will work and you're eliminating a lot of the complexity of binders and medium um, and then you can introduce that later on yeah i have no idea who would in our world besides weathering need dry pigment you know you know the only thing i can think of is uh, the crimera paints have kind of almost there because what do we have yep. there's 16 colors yep and so they're all single more. pigment sources yeah. yes and that's you know that's as close as i can get you know that's why i don't have my set anymore because hey if i'm going to paint more than just like one person with this or one figure with this i might as well just go and pay eight dollars or whatever it is or four bucks and get the color i really want yeah and be able to paint multiple figures with it um but i completely understand the importance of having those because if I'm looking for that one little shade, I can make it and it's going to make my model or figure pop a heck of a lot more than, than the generic uh, hobby paints are. Yeah. For those of you that want to go down this route, uh, Goober Town Hobbies actually does do a very good video where he talks about, uh, you know, how paints are made and actually does get some of the dry pigments and, and shows you kind of what, what it is that's in paint. Just kind of cool for those of us that are inclined to follow that rabbit hole. I'll watch it. I ain't gonna do it, but oh, I'm I'm fascinated by the science of paint. I I, lo- I mean, I won't lie. I love the the mixing and all that. I I could have stayed on the tour of ReaperCon with the 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 woman who was in charge of paints and grilled her for 
hours on end asking about the nature of paints and stuff along those lines. Um, Nerd. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't deny that one on any level, but um, so next, you know what? Let, let's, let, let's get a little more complicated. Let's go into some, some old school techniques. You, you've already talked about the Zorn palette. So I have Verdaccio. Um, now I've actually done prior to this video. It's kind of funny. I've actually done a lot of research on Verdaccio. Um, just because I was so fascinated by uh, when I saw Shoshi do it in a video because um, she's a classically trained watercolorist. And I thought originally it was a watercolor technique, but it actually is also an oil technique as well that basically Verdaccio means underpainting and way it's translated in things back in Renaissance style art is that a lot of places for like skin tones, they would start with a greenish gray undertone and then because of the translucent nature of skin colors, which are based in a lot of red, a red, you'll have a natural graying and shading effect because of the work of complementary colors. So when you paint translucent reddish pinkish colors on top of a greenish gray background, you actually get a more uh, vibrant skin tone um, and have a lot of control over lights and shadows and things along those lines. Um, I love watching it. I haven't, haven't really tried it yet. Um, I've seen some people that have done some excellent works. I would put this as a solid four to execute it uh, really well. Um, I, I'd be curious as to what uh, you uh, you two think about it. Yeah, so I think actually this is another instance where all three of us kind of have similar elements on our, our things. So for me, it was Grisset. Mm -hmm. And uh, for Dan, you, I think it's Zenithal Highlighting. All of these elements are about applying, and it's particularly light values, onto the model before introducing color. So uh, with, with Verdaccio, it's, it's very much that uh, the, the green to, to the skin tone, um, which helps a huge amount with uh, in, you know, giving the impression of, of blood and vitality below the surface of the skin. Um, for Grisset, it's, it's a more general technique, which is uh, taking that, you, desaturating down to pure grays generally um, and applying those values and then just toning over the top of it. Uh, this in the hobby is often known as sketch style. It was popularized by Matt DiPietro. Um, and then Zenithal highlighting is really just a very quick and easy way of taking a lot of the elements of that Grisset into uh, a hobby setting um, but all of them I think are, are invaluable for giving you those light values so much quicker than you can do if you try and map them on your own if you try and think about bounce lights and reflections in in a very manual way at every stage with every color separately at different stages as you get further through the, the painting of the model yeah, absolutely Dan, anything to add on that one? or No, if I was to piggyback and say Zenithal highlighting, um, yeah, because we're you know basically going to use two or three colors uh, just to kind of like put a little bit more emphasis on where the light source is coming from. Uh, and you can use that either ways of either um, creating that highlight or depth or just having an area or knowing what the actual shapes are that you're looking at so you can paint on top of it. Mm -hmm. um so 
I had for myself, I put that at level two because you're not really thinking about it until you're wanting to start to improve once you have your basics down. You're like, how? what else can I do? Oh, yeah, the head is normally going to be a little shinier, especially mine, than the legs. So how would I do that? Well, usually it's, you know, if you have a rattle can, you can just spray on top or airbrush or even just paint it on yourself um, and block. But that's um, it's just an easier way. And I think that's your first step into that whole thing, you know. Um, you know, I want to add that this is kind of if you're out there and you're trying to decide what level that you want to move to, here's an excellent way, I think, of determining that if you're thinking only about edge highlighting a space marine shoulder pad then you're in that kind of that tabletop world if you're looking at the curve of the shoulder pad and going hmm that's partially uh, a sphere so the highlight needs to go to the top you know in the top angle at which the light is coming from the right shoulder you're moving on to from from kind of just getting models on the table to thinking about that next level of painting um, and I think that was kind of a realization that I kind of had when I first got back into this and then took Caleb and Kat's class and then gawked at Roman's miniatures in the display at the Nova Open was when I was kind of like thinking about it now. Okay, okay. It's not just getting models on the table. It's getting super pretty ones on the table. And then, <laughs> then it was like, where the hell's the table? I have no idea what a table is. I'm just going to paint. Um, <laughs> Oh God, we're moving now. We're moving along here, Dev. We're going to regress yeah. all the way back to the prehistoric level. What is this dipping mini wax is on your list? I oh to... man, yeah. I, <laughs> you know what? I I still have a, a slight um, soft spot for this. So, for those of you that have not been in the hobby for twenty plus years, uh, this was a fad. Uh, it started with like some kind of wood stain. Um, and literally what you would do is you would take a model that's just been painted with base coats and you dunk it in this wood stain, take it out. If you're feeling fancy, you can like try shaking the excess off. Um, and it would basically wash the model, right? It was a super strong wash still around. It's gotten converted into a hobby, uh, product by army painter. They have, um, Quick Shade, I think, is is the brand that they yeah, they sell it under. Called. Yeah, I think that's what it's called. Um, it has some values. I tell you, you can paint a skeleton. If you're thinking Osioc Bone Reapers, damn, can you paint a lot of Osioc Bone Reapers really fast by dipping them? Just like spray paint those things with like uh, what's called, not Corax White, the other one, the warm one, Wraith Bone. Spray it, Wraith Bone. Dip it. Done. Um, it's, it's evolved a little bit, obviously washes are an alternative, although they're not nearly as strong. What I am seeing a lot of these days, which is fundamentally the same technique refined a little bit is using the enamel washes and then removing the excess enamel. It, it does very similar, uh, effect. It's, it's quite a weathered worn look. It's often a very warm tone because, you know, you're often using browns for that, but you could use cooler grays or, or blacks for it um it's a style uh, you know if if it's what you like go for it you're going to get a lot of models painted quickly uh it's probably not going to be the most refined thing you can think of <laughs> i'm i'm setting that squarely in the one category now, yeah, now yeah. you get the bonus 
that ain't no paint coming off that model either. Because it's oh. basically painting them with shellac, you know. You could you could throw that thing in a wood chipper and the, the paint will still be on the model, yeah. You know, and I just had flashbacks of those first videos they came out where they were just dipping them with uh, pliers and then shaking them. Yeah. yeah. Boy, that's some funny stuff. So if you guys haven't heard of this and haven't seen the videos, you got to find those old ones when it was just like the biggest thing that ever happened to painting. And you you want to look for the ones with the electric drills. Yeah. That that was that was me stepping up my game was the electric drill and the cardboard box. I don't care how big your cardboard box is, not all of that paint is going to be spraying inside of that cardboard box. I'm telling you now. <laughs> nice. Oh hey, my gosh. But you mentioned this, like it evolved from there's you now people use washes that aren't as strong and also uh using enamel washes, which which probably are as strong. I've never used an enamel wash before um but this is the whole concept of contrast paints and yeah you're 100 percent right and it's what army painters got speed paint coming out now so it's all the same same thing right except the only difference is you can't use minwax as a glaze it's just not going to work you can you can thin <laughs> out contrast paints i use i use uh, when i said inks before for black lining i can't lie I use Black Templar, the contrast paint. It's one of the best liner paints I've used. Um, but I don't know, man. With enough white spirit, I think it's doable. With enough white spirit, <laughs> maybe maybe some uh, turpentine or something. You know, a do lot it. of a lot of open space, a lot of open air, so <laughs> don't pass out. Challenge accepted, my friend. Challenge accepted. <laughs> nice, nice. All right, Dan. Yep. Yep. Tell us what you mean by wet paint mix on miniature. So, okay. So it's just, this is a blending, but, um, and maybe, maybe it's just regular blending. But to me, um, when you have two colors that you want to transition to, and it's wet on one side, wet on the other side, and you put something in the middle and it mixes, I don't know what the i'm sure there is a technical term for that and it's probably one word so i mean there's wet blending but i think you're talking about a step beyond that right where the the it's almost dripping wet right yeah because they're both yeah they're both wet and it almost you know the way that i had this separated because you know i have that other one up there that you guys see that i'll get into in a little bit actually it's a little bit like glazing too it's kind of thin but you want those colors to to just naturally mix they, and for me, that's very, very difficult. It is, it, maybe it is just wet, wet blending. Maybe that's what it is. Just, it's just not, um, maybe I was thinking of something you know, so, different beyond that. Yeah, I have wet blending on mine, and I actually do kind of see a distinction between two types of wet blending. There is like the artistic wet blending, which I know Mike has, has really been delving into recently, where you apply paint you know wet paint maybe a little thicker than you normally would on one side a totally different color on the other side and you bring them together with a brush in the middle whilst they're still both wet so you're moving the paint on the surface which it is the acrylic equivalent of just straight up painting in oil painting right that's that's basically how oil painting works because you've got the working time to do it in acrylic painting your challenge is working before the paint dries because the dry time is so quick 
Then there is something that I personally love doing, particularly on scenic bases, stuff with a lot of texture, which is just, and, and Mike has watched me do this, squirting paint directly from a dropper bottle onto a base with a bunch of different colors on different parts of the base and then just using my brush to organically you know, blend between them and not necessarily fully mixing them on that surface. Um, and it's functionally, it's the same thing, but in a much less controlled manner, much less precise manner. You do want the texture there generally because the texture will eat up some of the volume of liquid. It will control the flow of it a little bit better um, and it will forgive some of the rougher transitions as well. Yeah, um, look, well, I loved watching that. Yeah, you know, I, I told you how Roman sold me where he dumped the bottle of, you know, army painter shade on the, you know, the just squirted it right on his model and started moving it around with his hands. And I was like, yes. And yeah. I saw you do it. And I was like, we are the same. <laughs> yeah, I got it. I got that particular thing for the bases off of Ollie Spath, also uh -huh. known as Honor Guard. Yeah. Uh, from a class I attended that he did. Um, it's incredible, it, especially if you've got a really good, like, earthy tone you can introduce blues and reds and greens and yellows and all kinds of stuff into those browns and give it way more life than than you ever would if you if you were trying to just do that layer after layer awesome 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 i love that style I, I i love when when people don't worry about rule oh you must use this type of brush to do this you know people <laughs> like hell no i'm using my elbows i was painting with sharpies earlier today dude i'm i'm in a yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely all right so i have one here that i'm going to throw out because i feel like it's going to cover ones that cross on different well i have layering on my list yeah and that covers so, a lot of different things <laughs> well you know um, and maybe this is the the one of the the lessons that we learn is you know with within the each simple techniques they get deeper and deeper and we just give different names to them, but they're the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe that's something, you know, that we need to take away. Cause you know, as I'm looking at some of these numbers and you know, that, cause I'm keeping track uh, so we can make our poster that we're going to hang up in the headquarters someday. Right. Uh, so the um, LTPD headquarters. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have these twos and threes and fours, but we've like we've gone back and forth. Like, well, if you add this little bit more to it, it's definitely a, a technique you're not thinking of when you're starting, and even when you're you know becoming a, an intermediate painter, you're still not really to that point where you, know, you can still push that technique even further. Um, so I, I think that's kind of neat, and that's something maybe we should just remember in our in our painting hobby world that you know. It's it's simple concepts or, or simple techniques, but the concepts stretch um, a lot more deep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I uh, I I actually as soon as I see layering, I think the quintessential Games Workshop technique. Right. I don't I don't really see it applied outside of that under the name layering. Um, I mean, there are definitely artists that are not interested in blending and are quite happy to just choose the application of paints that are not necessarily blended together. Um, but layering is, is very definitely a technique that Games Workshop has been teaching forever. Um, and I really feel like it's unique to them. Mm -hmm. um, and I think 
it's unfortunate because when I look at what they call layering, they're incorporating another on your list, feathering a lot right. of the time mm -hmm. um, to get that blending, to make it look better, which I think is unfortunate because it, it detracts from what layering should be and it misleads the consumer because it's very difficult. I mean, you know, feathering is a difficult technique. Layering, pure layering, when you're learning and you're following along and you're looking at the images that they're producing and you're trying to apply a layer that matches that, you're never going to get it if you're not feathering. And so you're, you're kind of always going to be dissatisfied with it. Whereas if you layer and you apply it in the right place, you can get a beautiful result without having to worry about blends or transitions or smoothness. Um, I'd love to see them actually really embrace that and, and adopt that as a style. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm torn on it because I get, I, I totally understand what you're saying, but you know, the, their part, a part of the reason why I, I actually like the way that GW does it is because I feel like it makes accessing painting easier because you have your base coat, then you have your two, oh, yeah. and you have your washes. And I, I agree with you that I think that it is a misnomer and that's where we get a bazillion, you know, if you go to Trevarian, to, to Vince Venturella, to Squidmore, to all these people, and they say the word layer, you're going to get four different interpretations of it, right? Where it's really, in the end, ultimately, a glaze and layering are the same thing. Feathering is the same, same thing. Two brush blending, depending on who explains it, is the same thing, right? And so... It's, I, I don't know, it's always one of those things. I think there are putting, if, if you go from a simple world where you take, you have your two, your, your shadow blue and your highlight blue and you go, okay, here's my shadow blue. I'm going to add, it's going to be one-to-one -one with the highlight blue. Then it's going to be just the highlight. And there's your layers in between there. It's pretty simple. But when you yeah. start talking about going into mid-tone set, like, I don't know, what's his name? The the Korean guy, uh, SG Collective. And he's like, okay, now to mid-tone eight. And I'm like, what? That's a 28 yeah. millimeter miniature. How do you have a mid-tone eight on his loincloth? Like, yeah. you know. <laughs> I, I don't disagree. I do think that layering is a great uh, style stylistic technique but i think i disagree with the way gw teaches it because they're not showing you the pure layering in the photos most of the time they've been softened those transitions and i'd love it if they just showed and they've gotten better right with the battle ready and the uh uh display or whatever it is they call um i i think they've gotten better um but i'd just love it if they were really straight up here is a raw brush stroke of, you know, a barely diluted example of this paint. And you can see that line, the edge that it forms, and that's okay. We finished with layering. Why don't we do, uh, and we kind of went into two brush, but let's do a, so Dev, why don't we talk a little bit about stippling, which is on your list? Yeah, so I think this, in my mind, there's there's a little family here of texture, pa painting texture. Uh, stippling is one. Um, we'll, we'll leave sponging because that's, that's using a different technique. But stippling, uh, a painting, 
faking hair rather than just painting sculpted hair. Um, those those kinds of things are all about very purposeful application of the brush in a particular motion. Either it's um, you can also do the same for worn leather and for rough woven cloth, uh, especially when you get to the larger scale uh, busts and things. You, you're very carefully applying paint to not necessarily provide blends or transitions as you or, or apply color as you would normally think of it, but to imply a texture to the paint uh, or to the to the surface of the model. Um, and stippling is is one of these techniques. It you know it's just a short dabbing motion. I class it as a two. Um, I actually think, especially for people who struggle with dry brushing, and and Dan, I was one of those people. I've I've literally spent years practicing dry brushing. Um, I think stippling can be a really good way of applying highlights without having to worry about blending, which is another thing I don't generally feel I'm particularly good at. Um, and and it can it can do that, but it's it's a very stylistic choice to do so. You know, one of the things I think that's interesting is stippling, in and of itself, to me, is a combo technique potential. Um, and what I mean by that is that I've noticed now. So what I've started doing with creating transitions between two colors and I, my goal is to glaze between the two to kind of get a smooth transition I and, and if you don't know what a glaze is a glaze is you know very thin down paint um it's very translucent and the goal is to basically place one uh, that glaze in between the two overlapping between the transition of two colors to make those two colors come together i find that stippling with glaze consistency paint increases the speed at which I'm able to get a good transition uh, and a better looking transition too. And so instead of just necessarily going, okay, I'm going from halfway from uh, the highlight into the shadow to create that transition, kind of dabbing the brush around in those areas and, and like kind of repeating the process with kind of different color with the different colors all in that spectrum actually decreases the amount of time I spent glazing because my god I, I've gotten to points where I've been like e even on the steampunk guy that that you saw dev there were parts where I was probably in the 20 plus glaze layer and I was still level and I'm still like wow I've still got to keep working on this transition um but now doing that kind of combination between glazing and stippling I don't know makes it look better and so that I I feel like stippling is such a useful technique overall and that you can bend it to different consistencies and paints and i'm sorry the that guy the the amazing artist bohun he calls his technique dry brushing but it is not dry brushing it is stippling you know he because he does not take all the paint off his brush it's still a very, if you watch him paint it's still a very wet brush and it's kind of this combination between stippling and wet blending um which is why, why i think that that and his paint don't get me wrong love to be able to paint like that that dude is a master for sure but um yeah i i feel like that that, that stippling can be a gateway technique that that you can start at that level one where you're just trying to get some texture but then it becomes such an amazing tool in your bot in your toolbox um that you start getting into three four type levels of stippling 
Sorry. Yeah, I could see that. No, I think that's that's actually a really good take on it. Um, and it's something, as you say it, I know I've done without really thinking of it as stippling. I always think of stippling as introducing that texture to the surface. But as you say, it doesn't need to be. It's a great point. Dan, you got anything or, you know, you're just going to look pretty? I'm just going to look pretty over here. <laughs> well, seeing as you started talking about glazing, should we should we take it back to Dan's point on glazing? Yeah, let's do that. That makes sense. Um, well, Mike did a pretty good job. I was just going to let him keep on talking there. He did a good job explaining what it is. Um, so I, I put that kind of like a level two. And I know it's kind of as simple, but it may be, maybe we're going back to um, there's just more complexities than we first see like oh this is just watered down paint um and i could just throw it on there and i might be able to change the color um you know stuff that we can you know use those theories and scale modeling uh, and pretty much anything that we do so it's a fairly simple process and idea but the more we start to use it and like okay like mike said uh, bringing two transitions together it's a little bit more difficult you know, it's not going to be that super thin glaze. It's going to be just a smidge thicker paint. Um, and then you have, um, you know, very selective glazing. Like I want to transition, um, you know, between a, a base color and a new color. Um, but different than what Mike was saying. I don't know how to explain it because it's getting late and I've had my beer. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's glazing the whole surface and then there's yeah. selective glazing. And yes. Yeah. Um, and that's... And, so it gets a little bit more, you know, complicated and, you know, very, very um, selective on how you want to, you know, use those glazes, you know, and as Mike was saying, you know, you can use those 28 or 30 something different glazes uh, to get a color transition or, you know, make it a little thicker, a little bit more pigment in there. So you don't have to use as many, but you have to have that control if you're not, if you don't have that right consistency or that right mix between your medium and your 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 pigment color then you're going to throw things off and and you have to rework it or you have to start from scratch which was which would be unfortunate which i normally do i just go ahead and strip it and start all over again since i can't freaking <laughs> glaze properly sometimes so um, I, I think there's a couple things with glazing that i i find can trip people up uh, one is is they overload the brush. There's too much paint on the brush and it floods the model. Uh, the second, which is uh, related to the first, is you have to be incredibly mindful of where you lift your brush back off the model because that's naturally going to leave more paint down just because you're breaking the surface tension at that point. And then the third thing is, and this comes back to, to the science and making your own paints and all of that malarkey, is knowing what's in the paint that you're using to glaze. Because if you've got any white pigment in that paint, welcome to Chalk City. <laughs> Just that's yeah. what you're dealing with, right? And so for me, uh, contrast paints are amazing because aside from apothecary white, none of them have enough white pigment in them to, to cause any issues. They have a natural translucency already, so you don't need to worry about that as you're thinning. Um, but artist inks, again, come up trumps because you can you can just thin them and you know exactly what pigments are in them um it, it will literally tell you on the bottle so so you can do that so it's chalk city it's right down the street from uh simple green lake right you know <laughs> uh for dan it is apparently yeah yes it is 
you know, and here, here's something, here's, here's a pro tip from a non-pro. Um, when I've started getting chalky paints, I started adding satin var a little bit of satin varnish and it kind of like, because of the nature of the varnish kind of smooths over that chalky stuff. And so like with most scale, like the scale 75 flesh sets are all really chalky because they're all like, Hey, we'll put a little bit of pigment and tons of matte agent in there to make our paint uh, almost, you know, super matte. But what happens is those get chalky little bit of satin just a touch of satin varnish on your brush and mix it into the paint and boom yeah most of that chalky stuff goes away yeah giving yourself a little bit more binder to work with in the paint for sure yeah absolutely absolutely um so dan you have on here i was looking at one and i wasn't sure let me where are we wait 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 i'm almost there almost there oh you know what Let's go completely something that we haven't touched on at all. Let's talk about stencils and then we can go in the freehand. So let's talk about stencils, Dan. So um, stencils is just using a cutout pre-made pre shape and uh, either stippling, painting, or airbrushing, spray canning that mask and creating a shape. Um Again, I, you know, I have it at two. It, it seems like it's something kind of simple, but there's a lot of the things that can happen. You know, you can transition colors very interesting on there, get cool designs that you put on. Um, but if you don't have a stencil on properly, paint can bleed through. Mm -hmm. And that can definitely be a pain in everyone's ass because, again, taking a trip to Simple Green Lake <laughs> uh, many many times when i try to stipple <laughs> or i'm sorry use stencils and um yeah so it's it's a neat concept um i think it's very helpful to have you know i i love doing flames on some of my uh my figures and i can't do it by hand for some strange reason uh, i just it, it's too thick for some reason i don't know what's wrong with the paint it's always too thick for me <laughs> so um i i'll airbrush uh, stenciled flames on things and uh, I, I've learned enough times uh, how to do it properly and uh, so that I don't pull off the previous layer by ripping it off the, the uh, sticky paint or the sticky uh, stencil or um, having it bleed through. What is the paper? There's an airbrush stencil paper that's got a funny name to it and I can't think of what the oh, name of it is. I have no I Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Like it's like a I'm going to have to look it up at some point because hmm. there was a funny, like I've watched airbrush artists and they're like making their own stencils, like circles and stuff. And they're like, we're going to pull out this type of paper. And literally uh, you pull it off. It, it's like got a layer on it. So you cut it out and then the other side is sticky, but just, it's not super sticky. So it won't take paint, but it'll, it'll stay in place and prevent uh, leakage. But yeah, you know, I, I got never encountered that. Yeah, no, I'm gonna have to Google know. it, man. Um, so and so the only reason I put it at a two because you know a one very simple you 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 know you put a mask on or you just cut out a shape on a piece of paper and you paint over it and it's that simple. But as you learn, you can't uh, you know if you're not doing it properly, you can have bleed through. If it's too tactile, you can rip off your previous layers, and all that just means that you're gonna have to do a lot more corrections on it or have to repaint things. Yeah. And I will say, although we've talked about applying it with an airbrush, applying the paint onto the stencil with an airbrush, um, I actually almost prefer sponging on paint or 
not so much stippling, but certainly sponging because you can use a drier paint and and it helps reduce the odds of of that bleed through. Doesn't give you the smooth blends, doesn't give you those nice high contrasts within the the stencil. Um, but uh, yeah, so for those of you that are not airbrushers, stenciling is still an option. Just you know, sponge on your paint over the top of it. Yeah, if you try to do strokes, you're just going to get paint on in places you don't want to on a stencil. Yeah. I learned that. I learned that on a wall. <laughs> trying to put a trim on a wall, I'm like, why does this look like crap? And then I saw. Mike is as Mike is tagging uh, the sides of buildings in DC. <laughs> Banksy revealed. I mean, right, right. <laughs> if only I, so, I take so Banksy's if, money. If, if if you're better than I and you use and you don't use stencils, then you would make your shapes and designs with freehand. And I have that at a level four because you, unless you're classic, unless you're trained and you know what you're doing and you have that muscle memory to paint by hand freehand does not work <laughs> are like so so my brain and my mind's eye doesn't connect to my hands so if i'm thinking of making a circle then yeah it's a big blob of something so i find freehand to be very difficult for folks that are trained though this is definitely a lot easier and actually probably be a fantastic fun technique to do on on miniature hobbying because that there's so many places you can go and you can use your imagination um to create your own stuff without you know blank colors or just flat colors or using stencils or decals i i've actually so i i think freehand is is very difficult i'm you know not particularly good uh, in a two-dimensional medium, which is is basically what freehanding is at a really small scale. Um, one thing that I found that helps a lot is varnishing between layers to smooth out, because otherwise you end up picking up on uneven levels of paint and exacerbating them. Um, I, I do think that helps a lot, but if, with any of these techniques, I guess if you if you want to improve them, just practice. Um, but I'd also put freehand higher just because. Honestly, I don't think you need to do it. Between stencils and decals, there are ways around uh, the the you know the problem. Or even just you know if it's a, like a banner, just cut off the the banner and then just print out a paper one that's got a nice piece of art on it. You know, that's right. Yep. It'll hit still it with, look good. Hit it with some tea so it looks like it's weathered, right? You know, <laughs> soak it in a little bit of tea. I'm I'm sorry, that's a waste of perfectly good tea here. Hey, oh, then you must have been mortified to see Ben Comet stick a model in to do weathering. Did you? I have you, not seen that. No, yeah, you have to look at his one of at, on his YouTube channel. He's using the the tannins from the tea to create uh, aging on 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 metal. Oh, man, hashtag outrage. <laughs> the, 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 I I think freehand is something that's overthought. Um, because what I've noticed, and I, I feel like um, there's a lot of margin of error that that you have with freehand on a smaller scale model. Um, and so people get stuck. Uh, like, for example, when you're doing uh, your chapter icon by freehand, you don't have to be perfect. 
it's called what that's what weathering is for right <laughs> and so like the places where you're a little bit uneven take the sponge dip it you know and and get some weathering on it and so actually kind of gives it a little bit more character your skulls don't have to be perfect right you, you know so i feel like that while you don't you're absolutely right you don't have to do it i i just personally enjoy painting freehand and so yeah. i'm i'm not great at it i have things that i'm better at like for example i can paint an eagle's head because i've painted about 90 of them trying to figure out how to paint the raptor's chapter symbol but that's merely practice not uh, necessarily some ingrained artistic challenge um i've been uh, i've painting freehand um marco and uh alexandra from craft world studios both firmly believe that 99 percent of what painters do on miniatures is basically freehand it's just all different variations of uh, of of it you know putting a light and a shadow that weren't there is arguably freehand it may not be a picture per se which is what everybody typically thinks of it is but if you reduce it down to that it kind of decreases the ominous nature of it because then you see there there's a russian woman that paints these paintings on horse you know on uh, you know she's got 28 millimeter horse and there's basically birth of venus painted on the side of it you know and i'm like i wonder if we looked how close at that like if we actually like expanded on that how much it would actually look like it or is that the trick of the eye from the distance now she's an amazing for i i i love watching her paint she's an amazing painter but i think that again the margin of error on something smaller is huge because you know you can you have tricks you don't have to paint a perfect face it's just got to be in the shape of a face so i don't know i i love freehand but i i do think it, it is something that um varies everything from drawing uh hazard stripes on uh your iron warriors to uh fancy banner freehand banners you know but one tip i'll give this this is this is one of the things that's helped me a ton get some watercolor pencils and sketch out your design first on the miniature that is a shoshi bauer trick uh, though that that helped my freehand so much by being because you if you if you use like a regular colored pencil there's oils in it and a watercolor there's not so you can paint right over it and it just dissolves and so, but you also map out. So I know a lot of people that say they can draw, but they can't with the pencil, but can't do it with a paintbrush. Well, now you can have the best of both worlds, you know. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. A, a big learning for me was just realizing you don't like, especially if you're doing something like black on white, you know, just a simple monochrome, which you often do when you're starting, like your Raptors chapter symbol, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you can actually go back in and trim it with white right like mm -hmm. there's no reason you can't it may be hard you may need to do several layers very very thin layers just to build up the opacity but there's always an undo on these things right and if you're really really worried about it lay down some enamel varnish before you start right and then worst case scenario just a little q-tip with some acetone and just take the whole thing off and start again from scratch exactly exactly or you know there's always the option of like simple green <laughs> <laughs> or even better do what i do don't assemble your miniatures so when you screw up on a piece you only have to strip one part of the miniature that's there you go 
Oh man, we're getting into the subassembly debate here. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, uh, you know, uh, yeah, that's a huge conversation in and of itself. So, um, let us do. Oh. Okay. Well then I'm going to, I'm going to toss Dev uh, to brush blending. Oh yeah. So um, this is a technique that I have never done. Um, I straight up don't see the point in it, honestly. Uh, for me, uh, um, it, depending on how you apply it, you're either just feathering or you're wet blending or you're kind of hovering between the two. Um, and I only have two hands and one of them is holding the model. Um, and whilst, you know, I'm okay holding a brush in my teeth, I'm not about to paint with it and I can't be bothered with swapping the brushes over in super fast style. Um, I, uh, it just, it's not worth it for me. I, I would put this at a four, not necessarily because of the complexity, although I think there is quite a lot of complexity there. Um, it is just mechanically, I don't think it works for a lot of people and I don't think it's necessary. If you want to try to brush blending, do it after you've done a decent amount of wet blending. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and see if you prefer it to wet blending, but I'd think of wet blending as the default and to brush blending as an alternate implementation of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I I wholeheartedly agree with you. It's it's I only did it because I was in a blending boot camp caught by taught by Matt DPH. Yep, <laughs> and so and he's like kind of the master of the two brush blending. Him in Dallas Kemp, I guess. Um, yeah, if, I mean, if, I mean, if you get the opportunity to be taught by an expert on it, take it. Right, I mean, right. that is true of anything. But uh, yeah, I'm not sure I'd, I'd hunt it out myself without that so i'm going to throw in this because it's not on either list but it is something it's a technique that fascinates me and it looks like it should be something that's easy mode but to me it's a little bit tricky but loaded brush oh man i have messed around with this one um that so this is again i would say a four. I'm actually going to push two brush to a five. I take it. I, I revise that and push it to a five. Mm-hmm. Loaded brush, I would say, is a four. It's again, do your basic wet blending first and then try taking it to the next level. Um, I actually, in some ways, prefer it to wet blending. I think it has some very, very cool usage. Uh, but you've got to really know your, your brush pressures and and you have to have that down for it to work you need to know how your paints are going to behave you need to really have nail paint thickness brush pressure uh yeah it's it's tough technique to to learn but then once you've nailed it uh it's trivial to execute yeah and it's one of those things that it just when you watch ben comets do it it looks intuitive like yeah. it, it makes sense that you have a highlight color on the tip and the rest of the paints in the belly put the, you know, and just kind of mix in a downward motion or whatever direction you're going with the shadow and boom, 
but there's so many little intricacies. Like my big killer is too much white on the brush and mm-hmm. then I wipe it way off. And then it's not enough white on the brush. And, you know, the consistency of white paint is all over the place from games workshop kind of gloop to scale 75's water white, which I mean, that, that stuff is so thin. It's amazing. And then you throw in, uh, your, uh, acrylic heavy body acrylics which actually i believe is mostly what ben uses when he does the white um and you're you're all over the place so yeah it's definitely that is that is a firm five um but i think that's one of those techniques if you master you're like where has this been all my life because it applies for every single other painting technique non-metallic true metallic all you know it's got it's everything wrapped in a one loaded brush you know i would love to get a class from ben comments mm-hmm. on that because uh, partly because i straight up don't know how you would teach a lot of it right like mm-hmm. the, the basic elements of it are load the brush with one color take a really thick alternate color just on the tip of the brush and control the application by changing the pressure of your brush great simple but the nuance in that there's so much of it that i don't even know how to verbalize like the intuitive response of how your brush behaves, how the paint is behaving, how you control those quantities and the thickness. I just, I'd, I would love to to take one of his classes for that. Well, and you throw in the the other side of it too, is this, it is like the opposite of the, the Bob Ross version, right? So Bob Ross, all of his canvases were painted with liquid white, right? And so he was painting on the wet white surface when he painted. That's why everything looks so smooth and beautiful. And he even says that. So it's not like a, a secret. That, that's his whole yeah. everybody can paint thing. So kind of loaded brush is like going the exact opposite. You have the super thick white with the super thin other colors, you know, kind of working. I don't know, I don't know why I brought that up. It's just something I thought that was interesting as two different, two different contrasts in it. But yeah, the Dan, Dan was, uh, for those of you who don't, no, uh, can't see us because we're not on video uh dan was practicing his best flair witch moment while switching rooms with his computer while deb was trying to talk so i'm not sure deb is i dan is on top of what um we were talking about which we we switched from two blush blending and i threw a new one on there which was loaded brush yeah i can hear you guys i'm listening oh, okay i didn't i didn't know if you had anything to add to loaded brush uh no um I did dabble in it a little bit and I actually, once you figure out how to do it to your, I guess, experience level, or when you find your sweet spot, it's like, it's like a light bulb. You're like, Oh wow, this actually works. I see it now. Um, So when, when I first started watching those videos, I did practice it an awful lot and it came out good and I hadn't done it in a while. It looks like shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it is something that uh, I have to continue to practice. If I want to use that kind of technique, um, I just haven't painted to that level yet mm-hmm. in a while. Uh, Cause right now I'm back into painting army mode. So mm-hmm. um, it's, it's no longer, you know, about one, one figure, uh, but if, I get to that point again, or when I'm just painting for a display piece or, uh, or just want one just good high level painting job, that might be something I go back and visit it. And I sometimes, you know, when I was first doing, it, I was like, well, I don't understand why I want to 
do this kind of technique, but I understand it. And it's a lot more fun when you start introducing different colors. So, mm-hmm. you know, you have, you know, uh, if you're going from um, a lighter to darker color, but if you're doing blues or if you're doing a green and a pink or something like that, um, changing those colors just opens up this whole world of stuff that you can do. Um, I'm just not there. For, you know, I can imagine it, but I get a good imagination sometimes. Yeah, I, I feel like that. that uh, it's one of those techniques that has like that ultimate aha moment. Like, it, it, like I don't know. It just to, to me, it seems like something you'd be like, "Oh, I got it." You know, like it, it's not something that you gradually get into. Like you can practice and practice and practice, and then one you wake up one morning and you're like, "Damn it, I've got it now!" By Jove. <laughs> You know, when you're like trying to figure that right mix for your glazes, mm-hmm. and, you know, and you're like, it, the water's evaporated enough on my wet palette <laughs> and it's perfect. And I know both of us have had, both of us have had this conversation yeah. like, oh my gosh, it's, I'm, I'm in a sweet spot right now, man. I make the best glazes and blends right now because it's just that the water's just right there. It's just, just the perfect amount, but you have to like let nature do it. <laughs> and it's a little bit more difficult to like manipulate the the amount of water and pigments and paints to make it do what you want it to do. So that's where I'm at when when it comes to that. But it's fun though. All right. So I think on on devs we also have shading. Yeah, shading and highlights. I I throw those two together. Okay. I think. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean these two are. I guess byproducts of a lot of everything else we've talked about. They're obviously facets, very important facets of, of contrast. The first thing I, I met, uh, you know, I covered, and you usually get them through most of the techniques we've been talking about. Um, I think for a lot of people coming into the hobby, uh, especially the GW route, uh, shading is equivalent to washes now, just because of the name of the paint line. Um, but really, you know, we're looking at darkening down those recesses. With highlights, we're looking at exaggerating the bright spots. And the reason that we're doing all of this is because we're operating at scale. We're trying to fake something into looking much bigger than it really is. We want to exaggerate those that contrast, partly for visual interest. It just makes something look more appealing. But largely because we're trying to replicate what it would be doing on a larger scale relative to the light sources and everything around it. Um, and for that reason, I would say that both of these are one on, on the iceberg scale. You want to be mindful of these pretty much right from the get-go. As soon as you've laid down a, you know, your two thin coats, this is the next step. And the means of application is going to change throughout your painting life, but you're always going to be applying these in some form on every model. Absolutely. And, you know, it's one of those, again, like it, it goes all the way up and down the scale, right? Uh, light shadow, highlight shading, contrast, uh, you know, all, all of that kind of plays into itself, you know? Um, all right. So I have one here that we haven't talked about yet. We've only briefly mentioned it. And then we have, I have object source lighting. so um this is a technique that doesn't make any sense to me in the context of 
miniatures. Um, basically, it is, if you don't know what object source lighting is, it's basically you're painting um, a figure with a specific point of light, like maybe it's a lamp or a campfire, and those colors, you know, the colors from those light influence the color that's on the model. Um, and so kind of a simplistic way, way of putting it. One of the biggest problems, and I, I have only seen a few people really execute it correctly because most of the time these models are painted. Like, for example, you'll see somebody who has a space marine with a plasma gun and half their body is blue from the plasma gun. And you're like, well, is this space marine standing in the dark? Right. Like, cause that's really kind of the question, right? Like if you go outside and you hold a blue lit ball in your hand in the middle of the day, you're, there is barely any reflection on anything. All of it's going to be situated around your hand. You know, it's not going up on your chest and face and forehead and all, all that stuff. I mean, Jeff's shaking his head, so I don't know if he's agreeing. Or he, I mean, he, I'm just saying, man, it's not in the broad daylight of the future. Right. No, you're right. It's in the grim dark. <laughs> You're right. You're right. There, there is some value to it, but is it night on every planet? I know. I know. I mean, there's an awful lot of film noir space Marines out there. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, th there is a lot of truth to what you're saying, really. Uh, balancing that OSL is incredibly difficult. It, 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 going from like not pushing it far enough to actually look like it's a light source to you've pushed it too far and it just looks ridiculous it's such a fine line to tread and you know especially with the advent of airbrushes everybody tries to do it um but you've got to remember that if you wanted to get it perfect you have to be airbrushing from inside that plasma coil right which you cannot do right uh, unless you remove the the plasma weapon and you spray from exactly that point just the right amount still um it's it's tricky and even then you're not going to catch any bounce light that happens and and that's another big part of uh object source lighting is that it's not just that the flame or the the glow directly it's also where it's bounced off of another piece of armor and is showing up in a you know otherwise concealed point it's it's just a very very difficult technique to do so that it looks right Right. And, and just like with non-metallic metal, having the light next to the dark is critical to getting that contrast and the metallic feel. You have to have that dark next to the bright in order for OSL to make any sense, too. You know, and so, I, like I said, I've only seen a few. Uh, <clears throat> there are good examples out there, but I've only seen a few where I've gone, God damn, that's that makes sense. Right. Like, and it's the pro it's not. None of them, by the way, are ones that look like somebody's walking in the, in, in, like they're coming out of a cave or half their body is in the cave and the other half is lit by moonlight. It's not like that. It's more of like uh, one of them was a dragon standing over a flaming pit. And it's just un the underside of the dragon has the lights and a couple of hints off the wings and stuff like that. But, you know, that type of stuff has always been the stuff that I've been like, damn, you know, <laughs> that looks yeah. real. Did you ever see the uh, heavy metal Balrog when it first came out? No, I'll have to look for it. Mm -mm. That that was a that was a piece that really sung to me because that was the first time I'd seen that kind of OSL lava effect really pulled off. Mm -hmm. 
it was it was incredible but it's just such a hard technique to execute yeah. well absolutely agree dan anything on osl or uh it is one of the the few classes that i have not had a one-on-one or actually a class on so mm-hmm. i'm still just in the dark and i don't do it for anything wait was that a pun did you say you're in the dark and OSL? <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Oh, Dan I wins. want to take credit for being that smart, but you know. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I think that that's it, isn't it? We cover... We've got airbrushing and oil paints, I think, are the two left. Oh, okay. Uh, so I have using oil paints. Um, I think. Oh, and we... feathering. No, we talked uh, about we, feathering we, and layers. We, we talked about feathering, though. Yeah. And there is one special one up here that I have that I'm just going to throw it out there. But um, so oil paints, um, that maybe it's a good segue into the other one. I think recently, well, it's definitely has caught on the last year. So I guess we've had enough time during COVID to experiment and to push ourselves and our hobby. And um, oils has definitely uh, come out of nowhere in our miniature hobbies, I think. Uh, there are a few f- people that we could find some information on, but now it's like pretty rampant and it's now becoming pretty much mainstream at this point. So I think it's just the use and understanding and not being scared of oil and oil paints. Um, yeah, we have to use a little bit of toxic stuff. It smells a little funny, but the stuff that you can do with oils, it just will blow your mind when all you've ever used is acrylic paints the dry time, uh, the, the, the capability of painting or um, of, um, of blending, uh, going back to the dry time, uh, finding, finding a mistake or wanting to, to take a look or make a repair overnight. <laughs> it's kind of cool to go back and, 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 and do some extra work on a figure after you had a dinner or something. It's you know, without it drying on you. Um, you mean so three days things. later? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think that's fantastic. And I think a lot of people are starting to accept it. They're like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe it's not as scary as our parents or grandparents told us of sniffing fumes and things like that. So, um, so I think really, I think using paints, uh, oil paints is pr- probably a, a two. Um, you don't normally, you know, first when you're like, hey, you know, I'm going to make, I'm going to paint some stuff. I'm going to give some acrylics. And you're not really thinking about oils until later on down the road. It's a little bit more, it's not much different. Techniques are all going to be the same, but you have more time to play with what you're, with those, with those paints than, uh, than we have with the acrylics. Yeah. It's, it's funny to me because I, when I first started modeling and the model hobby, enamels were the default, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm, I was so happy when I discovered acrylics because I didn't have to deal with awful smelling thinners. <laughs> I didn't have to, you know, go, like bend over backwards to try and keep my brushes preserved from one paint session to the next. Um, it was, you know, it was, it was a revolution to me. And now we seem to have come full circle and gone back to the, oh, but, you know, you can do so much better in the way of smooth blending and things like that with with oil paints than you can with acrylics or it at least do it a lot more easily um i still stick to acrylics i, I i've you know i mentioned it last time i'm a lazy painter 
and I'd rather just you know do everything with water than than have to have my my white spirit and my you know uh turpentine and stuff to hand and huffing those vapors just does not appeal <laughs> yeah and actually that's my biggest down i i haven't really played with them because the even odorless thinner is a lie um it still stinks and it actually <laughs> is one of the few things that will, will trigger a migraine in me so oil paints are just not they're not in my future or past or present but uh I understand it. And, you know, it's funny because that's um, a lot of the historical painters used are, are their predominant use is oil paintings. And now we're seeing more and more of the fantasy figure painters and such using them. Plus, they're also pretty versatile. I'll give them this. Um, oil washes seem like they're pretty useful when, when doing uh, recess shades and weathering and stuff along those lines for sure. You know, so there, there, there is value in it besides that, but, um, yeah, you know, oil paints stink. Yeah. I think, I think for all of Mike and my shitting on them, uh, I definitely agree that they are a level two. I think that they should be a relatively early consideration at least. And it's up to you whether you, you go for them or not. They, they provide an alternative and, and there's, you know, nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. And so we had air, who has airbrushing? I don't see it. You have airbrushing, but let me let me transition. But Dev should have airbrushing. He like he okay. We can let him talk about it. So let's transition from one extreme to the other extreme. Um, so I had oil paints, and I don't know how in the world I got on this, but we might as well talk about it now. But what was I drinking when I put painting <laughs> painting miniatures with watercolors? <laughs> so. Um, you know, it's a five <laughs> because I can't think of just water and paint, just watercolors in general, just, I don't think they work very well. They'd be great for blending. <laughs> they'd, be great, they'd be great for uh, certain transitions. But other than that, I mean, yeah. you're going to spray some stuff on it and it's going <laughs> to it's gonna it's gonna activate and it's not gonna look right um if you can make it work um that is fantastic um there is no use for watercolors whatsoever in miniature painting i just can't think of any yeah it's it's an interesting one isn't it because you're not gonna have the binder really adhering the paint to the surface in the way you'd want um yeah, you know, watercolors rely very heavily on on a textured absorbent surface to to draw those pigments in. Um, it would be like just trying to paint with with pigment and water, I guess. Um, you probably could do it. You're going to really struggle with any kind of color opacity. Yeah, I don't um, know why anybody would want to do that. Might as well just use glazes. <laughs> okay, true. I'm going to be that guy. I love using watercolors. I use watercolors every time I use I paint white. Uh, um, you people back home, you know out listening can't see it, but a Davies Gray for shading white. It's like the chef's kiss. It makes life so much easier. It's a great recess shade for it. And there's a simple solution to those that the watercolors activate. Get a spray varn a spray can varnish spray it from a distance and then you just build la build layers i 
use a lot of varnish when I paint because I paint a lot of times I'll do a couple of layers, et cetera, and then put a coat of varnish on it to protect and it's smooth. Um, so to me, it wasn't an inconvenience. I will tell you this, just like when you use a oil wash and you want to dab, like you put the oil wash on or a pigment wash on and you wipe away the excess, it's 20 times easier doing that with a watercolor because it's just literally, it's a wet brush cleanup. It's, it's so easy. Actually, Les Bursley has a video on it. That's how I, I started using watercolors. I was watching a video on making watercolor washes. Um, and so, yeah, no, uh, it is definitely one of those ones that you don't have to do, right? I just find it fun to, fun to try different things. Um, yeah, it's interesting, actually. I was just looking up what, what watercolors paints are made of. And honestly, they're basically acrylic paints with a less aggressive binder, from what I can mm -hmm. tell. Right. Um, I, I am used to watercolors being the, the dry pucks of pigment that mm -hmm. you then wet and, and that would struggle with opacity. But this, yeah. the style that you show that you, you have, I can I can see that working, maybe just not seeing the need for it when we've got right. <clears throat> a variant that's that's slightly more suited for, for the purpose. Right. Total gluttony on my part. No, there's no necessary to do it. I just like water. I've always liked watercolor since I was a kid. So, you know, and I, give me back some pucks of paint. <laughs> we need acrylic pucks. Um. <laughs> All right. So airbrushing is on my list, but I'm going to defer. I'm going to let Dev start out on airbrushing, considering he, he has worked with with one of the one of the people I think is a master at airbrushing, Caleb Wisdom back from CK Studios. Uh, yeah, I mean, Caleb is incredible. He is the one that taught all three of us really how to use an airbrush. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I work with an airbrush on every model I paint at this point, if only to apply a Zenithal, uh, but frequently to apply more than that, you know, initial colors. It is a two for me, um, in, in the same way that oil paints are, are a two, it's, you don't have to use an airbrush and you have a huge learning curve in using an airbrush, but it, it unlocks a lot of options um, and gives you ways of doing things that you may not have considered before. You, if you come into it super early in the hobby, I, it can become a bit of a crutch uh, because you're never going to get a blend as smooth as an airbrush blend one. It's very difficult to, especially if you're early in, in your progression in the hobby, um, getting a wet blend to look as good as an airbrush or layering or glazing as good as an airbrush. It's incredibly difficult. Um, but if you want to just suddenly make an army of models look 10 times better, uh, an airbrush is often a very good way of doing that. And it's rattle can. Um... And the transition for me is originally when I first got my airbrush, uh, the main thing I used it for was priming. Um, and then I learned how to Zenithal and then using base coats and things along those lines. I don't really use airbrush primer anymore. I have actually switched back to rattle can and I have switched to very specific uh, to the Mr. Hobby surfacer primers that are, they're, they're a little bit more pricey. They're a little pricier than like buying a bottle of like Steinle Res or Vallejo primer and pumping it through your airbrush. 
but those like the 1000 and the 1500 they eliminate layer lines from 3d prints and they don't clog any detail it's a I, I, it's wizardry in a can so i'm a, i have i went from the hating uh rattle cans because i've had uh when, when i first decided i was going to try to enter a painting competition i used a can of chaos black spray and something went wrong and only the propellant and other stuff came out no black and it melted my model uh melted the, the, melted the details of the model now you know so original hate relationship then i tried krylon black which i thought was awesome on metal but then i would look and i have krylon black all over my hands because it rubs off so easily um so it, it's been a love-hate relationship for me but, but now i've kind of switched back into using the mr hobby stuff man i i don't know have either of you ever used it before no, I've I've had amazing things, but yeah, I am too cheap. <laughs> if I if I found a, a cheaper source of it, then I'd I'd probably I'd certainly give it a go. But. It goes a long way. I mean, I've done I I I I am only into my second bottle of the black, and I would say I've probably primed sixty models with it, mm. and so it's not like it, it it went pretty far. You know what I mean? It was, and I found it for six fifty. For a can, oh. yeah, it's okay. not, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not. I mean, it, 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 you don't get the value of like you know, like you like the uh, even the little dropper bottles of primer from Vallejo go a long way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I keep uh, some Steinol Res black on hand for for airbrush priming, but I'm a, I'm also a rattle can primer and I'm a rattle can varnisher as well. Mm -hmm. um, because so for rattle can priming. Uh, for those of you listening in the UK, Halford's cheapest chips black sandable primer in a rattle can is just amazing. Uh, the closest equivalent I've been able to find in the US is Rustoleum 2X Touch or whatever it's called, flat black. Um, but those rattle can primers are much, much better at adhering to a surface than any, any airbrush primer will be because the airbrush primers are kind of latexy. And so what they do is they kind of shrink wrap around the model once it, as it dries, which is okay. But it, once it starts peeling it, the whole thing's coming off, um, which is the worst. Um, <laughs> but great when you go to Lake Simple Green. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, simple green is still a crime. And I'm not changing my stance on that one. Um, but for the varnish as well, uh, the reason I go for rattle can is because you can get enamel varnish, right? And I am not airbrushing enamel paints. No, sorry, Bob. That is not happening. Even with a respirator, that is uh, not something I want to do. Um, but applying an enamel varnish means that if you paint over it with acrylic paint, you can wipe away the acrylic paint without going through the varnish and taking off the layers below. Whereas if you're doing it with most of the airbrush varnishes out there that are, are acrylic based, if you're a little too aggressive, you're going to quickly go through that, that layer of varnish and, and start messing with what's underneath. Um, and similarly, an enamel varnish is just a very, very strong protective varnish. So as, as some of the predominantly paints gaming pieces, you know, both of them have, some really good strong selling points for me yeah and i'm going to throw out the the difference between airbrush varnish is acrylic based like when you buy matte varnish from vallejo or aka interactive 
those are great for like dulling down shine, but they don't protect like an enamel varnish does. Like if you like that's that's a huge difference in the two things too. Is that the enamel varnish will actually protect your miniature from damage, um, whereas mo the varnishes through an airbrush will not, because that's not what they're designed to do. But anyways, Dan, your thoughts? Rattle cans. Um, I, I was pretty much on the same course of as you. I would, you know, I started a long time ago. I found that I wasn't quite happy with the quality of the rattle cans, so I'm almost strictly, um, unless it's a really good day out, uh, airbrusher. Um, I it's just it just seems to be pretty easy. It gives me a chance to 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 use my airbrush, uh, to just do something a little different. Um, I use, oh, what is the name of it? There used to be a car company that made a sandable um, primer. Uh, I can't find it anymore. So I think I'm using Krylon, I think, uh, sandable primer for, v for autos. And that stuff is very, very thin, uh, very strong, and it keeps wonderful details. If it's a good day, I will use that, or if I'm looking for that particular color gray. Um, but like I said, most of the time I'm going to do, you know, I'm just going to airbrush because most of my armies is, if you guys are listening, all five or six of you know that most of my armies are black. So I might as well just <laughs> go ahead and just, <laughs> I just airbrush all my guys, just airbrush them all with the primer black. And then I have a little tub of, or a little dropper bottle of that same color for cleanup if I need it. And um, I'm off, off and running. Uh, if I want to do some Zenithal, if I'm going to use a different color, I just, you know, pop in some gray or some white and just airbrush it on top. Right. It just make, it's, it's more of a just um, ease of use at this point is, is why I do it. Um, yeah. Well, I think, uh, I think we've kind of reached the end of that. And I, I'm sure uh, we've kind of reached our end. I, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of like in that. Yeah, this is a long this is a long one we're gonna break show. it up into two i'll break oh, it up into two darn that's a shame because we should just let it all run what make it run it by the time we cut all this crap out yeah we'll see like an hour and a half anyways <laughs> um dev thank you so much for being here with us man uh this has been a lot of fun we we, we do not spend enough time together <laughs> man opposite sides of the country sucks right it does yeah. yeah no this has been a real pleasure i've had a blast doing this no, and thank you very much for, for sharing your knowledge with us. You know, we uh, we, we poked and, and prodded on a couple of things, but you brought in the, the, the real academic side of things, which uh, I certainly don't have. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Deb, why don't you tell our listeners, uh, remind them where to follow, find you? Uh, yeah, so if you want to see the latest things I've been working on, you can find me on Instagram, at Raggy Paints. Uh, I occasionally put long form content on raggypaints.wordpress.com. Um, if you want to join Hobby Mentors, uh, you can find a link to the Discord in the show notes, or check out at Hobby Mentors on Instagram, which has a link to the to the Discord on uh, on the the page there. Uh, not a lot of art to see on it; it's just a couple of info pieces. But um, yeah, please do sign up share your knowledge or, or take some knowledge from someone else uh yeah and thanks again guys for for having me on the show oh, certainly 
Absolutely, man. It's always an honor and a privilege to, to have a chance to talk with you. And, you know, like, like I've said, you know, getting to, getting to sit down and spend uh, some quality time with you and painting uh, next to you with a hook on my hand, you know, we're, we're bonded, <laughs> we're bonded forever. Right. <laughs> yeah, man, that, the, that was a phenomenal convention. Yep. I, I really had a blast there. Listening to Paint Dry with Mike and Dan is a production of LTPTWMD. All rights reserved. No portion of this recording may be used without the express written consent of the host. The music is Death by a Thousand Questions by Springtide. Download from the free music archive on a non-commercial attribution share alike basis. All views and opinions expressed in the show are solely the views and opinions of the person who said them. All celebrity voices, if any, were impersonated and done so poorly.